The most sinfully spookish of greetings to every single one of you. It's most appreciated you stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes that just hit the old listening vessels, of course, comes from country legend Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Now, just a few days ago, it was brought to my attention that somebody in the paranormal community, a friend of mine, we've been friends on Facebook for a few years, had passed away. So I am dedicating this episode to my dear paranormal friend, Lee Steele. You may remember that name as he was in the Paranormal Prowlers podcast Halloween episode. I had two bonus episodes. He was in one of those where he shares an EVP. Very sad stuff. May he rest in peace. He was always such a neat guy and just super friendly and you know every once in a while like every week or every other week all of a sudden I would see a notification saying Lee still shared you know your episode or something. So Good guy. He he definitely will be missed. And at some point in the future, his sister, who was part, who is part of his team, and perhaps other team members, will be on talking more about Lee and the evidence they've collected, and just uh, remembering the life of Lee. So Lee, this one's for you, my friend. Point Sir Lighthouse, the only turn of the 20th century lighthouse and station that you can actually go and visit in California. This rocky terrain of a location that the lighthouse stands on was first mentioned way back in 1542 by a Portuguese explorer, Juan Cabrillo, the first European to explore present-day California. Then, in 1602, Spanish explorer Sebastian Viscano mentions it, Point that appears on an island. And in 1769, explorer Miguel Costanzo, a man who, while aboard ship, was a cartographer, and on land he was an engineer, member of the Spanish voyage, the Portola expedition, while in the area he named the point Moro de la Trompa. And in 1793, British explorer George Vancouver describes the island as... It was a small, high, rocky lump of land, nearly half a mile from the shore. So basically it was shortened to Moro Rock from Moro de la Trampa until 1851 when the United States Survey renamed it to Point Sur. One year earlier, California, who became part of Mexico in 1821, says adios to Mexico and joins the United States. Now, throughout the years, there have been shipwrecks here in the treacherous northern California waters. Something needed to be done. Point Sur land was reserved for a lighthouse in 1866. Well, sadly, it was up to Congress, and they dragged their feet as slow as they could, taking their sweet time, and refused to provide funding for almost 20 whole years. 
With the fog that comes with NorCal and the wild currents, the large waves and the hidden rocks, this particular area was excruciatingly dangerous and made navigating the waters quite a challenge and extremely treacherous. In 1874, United States Lighthouse Service releases a statement. Part of it reads this. Point Sur is a most important point and should be the site of a lighthouse. In considering the various points on the California coast where lighthouses are still required, Point Sur claims the place of greatest importance. The following year, that is 1875, on April 20th, the coastal steamer Ventura wrecks just north of Point Sur. Thankfully, everybody survives making it to the rocky shore safely. Even though there were no deaths, it was still a terrifying event for those who experienced it. April 21st, 1875, the Sacramento Daily Union reports this. I was last seen from Santa Cruz at dawn this morning, about a mile to the north. She was firmly grounded in the rocks with about 14 gad of water in the hold. But little wreckage had been washed ashore up to the time of the departure of the Santa Cruz. But a heavy western wind was prevailing, which, if it continues until flood tide, will completely demolish the vessels against the rocks. 225 live to see another day. The 500 tons of freight, not so much. With the most current shipwreck, it lights a fire under Congress's ass. But even then, it would take 12 years for them to cough (coughs) up the much-needed dough. Give me my money. The day finally comes, more like the year, finally, 1889, standing on large, rocky, volcanic rock. It's close to 300 feet above sea level. It's about 40 feet tall, or should I say short? As the shortest lighthouse in the West Coast is Oregon's Cape Mears Lighthouse, which is 34 feet. In its history as being a lighthouse from 1889 to this very day, as it is still very much so a functioning lighthouse, it has had four light sources. First, the oil wick lamp, then the oil vapor lamp, fuels for those were kerosene and well and lard oils. And finally, in the 1950s, electricity was introduced to Point Sur. Hello, my friend. Welcome to the party. Then the Fresnel lens, which weighed a whopping 4,330 pounds and was used until hmm, 1978. Today, the aerial beacon that's used is visible for 23 nautical miles, and that, to me, is damn impressive. Today, if you go to Point Sur, you will witness a beautiful thing. It has all the original buildings. This includes the assistant keeper's quarters, the largest light station structure in the West, my friends. August 18th, 1889, the Californian reports something that many locals had wanted to hear for a very long time. M.J. Hubert, one of the newly appointed keepers at the Point Sur Lighthouse in Monterey County, has been in town this past week for the purpose of removing his family to their new domicile at Point Sur. Mr. Hubert is pleased with his position at the lighthouse. 
which is just now complete after two years of construction. It's a solid, substantial structure and is finished with all the modern appliances used in the lighthouse service. A commodious dwelling house sits about 1,500 feet away from the lighthouse has been erected for the use of the keepers and their families. This house is built of three stone granite, like the lighthouse, and the interior arrangements are first class in every respect. This was like music to people's ears. Ah, you can finally breathe a sigh of relief, my friends. It's finally open for business. Now, back then, the lighthouse keepers lived on the rocky island that is Point Sur, extremely isolated. The staff was one head keeper, along with three assistant keepers. Now, between the four of them, the lighthouse was manned 24-7. The four keepers and their families all lived here. One three-story home was for the three assistants with their families, while the other home was reserved for the head keeper and his family. The homes for the keepers were built out of local redwood and sandstone. It was a self-sustaining island. They had a 53,000-gallon water tank with a pump house, a barn that was equipped with horses and cattle. They even had a carpenter and a blacksmith shop. Each family was designated their own garden so they can grow the fruits and vegetables to their liking. The United States Lighthouse Service provided the families with one horse and a wagon. This was so that they could go and get mail and supplies when it was needed. And when I say as needed, I don't mean like every day or so. It was no easy trek to get into town. First, they needed to climb down close to mm, 400 stairs adjacent to the railway, cross the sand flats, then walk several upon several miles to the county road. In fact, supplies such as animal feed, medical supplies, firewood, and food would be delivered to them via lighthouse tender boats every four months. That's just three times a year. Manaloo! The children of Point Sur thankfully had each other or it would have been so boring. Up until 1927, the kids of the island actually would stay with local farmers who resided in town during the weekday so that they could have an education, go to school, and visiting home on the weekends. Now, in 1927, William Mollering, the head keeper at the time, requests that the school district provide a teacher at Point Sur. A small handful of teachers without families, were sent over, and they lived with the head keeper and his family. And at first, classes were held in a little shed. And later on, a one-room schoolhouse was built right near Point Sur off of Highway 1. Speaking of the children of Point Sur, I found one interesting story one day. One of the keepers notices that the station's cow is just kind of standing there right near the edge of the cliff and staring down. Well, the alert keeper goes, this is weird, what's happening? And he goes to investigate and ends up rescuing an eight-year-old boy who earlier had been riding his bike, but while doing so had fallen off and found himself in a very dangerous situation. Yeah, he was hanging off the cliff and holding on for dear life to a bush. Now, I don't know if this was one of the keeper's children or if he took the several mile trek to go check out the island. I don't know, but 
Very crazy stuff. Thank goodness that M- Muskowski was right there, or that kid might have not lived to see another day. The last keeper officially leaves Point Sur in 1974, so not too terribly long ago. Even though it was manned 24 hours a day, that did not stop the shipwrecks. Some, sure. On April 21st, 1894, just a few years after the opening of Point Sur Lighthouse, the SS Los Angeles will wreck right nearby. And unlike the lucky survivors of Ventura, not everybody would walk away from this particular shipwreck. The following day, the Los Angeles Herald prints a story that comes from a crew member. Los Angeles Herald. Everywhere, the women and children were screaming, and our first labor was to quiet them. They were all in their night clothes, and we wrapped them all in blankets so as to make them as comfortable as possible and put life preservers on them. After this, having provided the women and children with room in the lifeboats, we all had to wrestle for ourselves and directed our energies towards saving all that we could of our effects. We then started for the shore and landed at Point Sur Lighthouse. In attempting to land, our boat was nearly swamped. One of the passengers we thought we had saved died a few moments after landing had been affected by us. The poor boy was almost dead when we rescued him, and as we could do nothing for him until we reached land, he was too far gone when we finally tried to do something for him, and he died in my arms. Finding that we could do nothing more for this unfortunate young man, several of us started to climb up to the lighthouse. I was treated handsomely by the folks there, but I must say that God Almighty never made a worse possible place for a wreck than this same point, sir. And that's the sad thing is that even though there's a lighthouse there and people manning it, it still, you can't save every single thing. And those waters are so treacherous. It's not like a steering wheel where you could just go, oh, okay, I'm going this way, you know? Like, there's been times where I'm driving on the road and torrential rain comes and it's dangerous. And so, like, I'll find a safe spot to pull over. You can't do that. Treacherous waters, you're going everywhere. And it's just like, oh, my God, you're like a, one of those test drive dummies. It's just, it's horrible. So a Mrs. J.H. Cummings, a woman who has taken her children on board with her, they witnessed this heartbreaking event. I remember one heartrending scene. A German lady and her son were on a streamer, and when they lowered her into the boat, she begged her son to be lowered also. But they refused, and the next day, the poor woman's son was washed upon the beach, a corpse. So, I mean, that's heartbreaking. Other ships that went down in the area include the Majestic, the Panama, the Lupine, and just so many others. And it wasn't just ships. In 1935, the airship USS Macon wrecks right near Point Sur, leaving two men dead. The USS Macon's first flight took place in 1933, and it flew over northern Ohio for a good 13 hours with 105 people on board. Well, let's fast forward to February 12th. 1935, the airship is having technical difficulties that were in the process of being repaired. Well, it's not completely done when it leaves Texas, somewhere around the Van Horn area. They are en route to Sunnyvale, California, when they are hit hard by a vicious and unforgiving storm. The last SOS call from Commander Wiley. As soon as we land on the water, somewhere 20 miles off of Point Sur, probably 10 miles at sea. There were 83 people on the airship. 
two would never go home to their families. Radio man first class Ernest Edwin Daly jumps prematurely off the airship when it is still way too high up in the air. He did not survive the landing. Mess attendant first class Florentino Equiba drowns while attempting to swim back to the wrecked airship to gather belongings. The cruisers Richmond, Concord, and Cincinnati, and the USS Colorado all take part in helping with getting people to safety. Dorsey Pullman, who was aboard the USS Colorado, writes about the event the following day in a letter. February 13, 1935. Tuesday it was so rough, and with the rain we had an awful time getting along. We had gunnery drill Tuesday and more fleet maneuvers. The Macon came out about 1 p.m. Tuesday to man with the fleet and enter Frisco with us in the morning. The Macon came out in the storm not knowing she would never get back to land. The Macon circled high above the fleet all the afternoon, and about 6, radio messages started coming in that Macon had had casualties and would have to land. The CC of the fleet radioed all ships in to go at full speed for the wreckage. The crew abandoned it as soon as it hit the water, and all were saved except two. There were 83 men in the crew. The wreckage sank a few minutes after it hit the water. We lingered around the spot where it sank looking for any parts which might be still floating around. The searchlight and all ships were combing the waters all through the night. The crew of the Macon were floating around in rubber floats and almost froze to death. I had to read about the Akron disaster, but this I witnessed. The Commander Clay had just been transferred to the Macon from this ship. This may contradict with the papers, but this is straight. There was an explosion in the tail, and they could not control it. So I always like when I'm doing research on episodes like this, and I find first accounts, you know, people that have experienced this, that they saw it. They're not speculating. They're not guessing. They're like, no, this is exactly what happened. I was there that day. This is what went down. So in another letter, the gentleman wrote more details, basically saying this. When the thing hit the water, the gas caught on fire and burned almost all night on the surface of the water. And it wasn't just the shipwrecks and other lighthouse stuff going on. During World War II, the United States Navy was stationed here at Point Sur, while here they conducted experiments with early radar and sonar systems. With the end of the Second World War, the Cold War starts up. In 1958, the Navy builds a naval facility half a mile from Point Sur. This was to provide top-secret submarine surveillance, employing the classified sound surveillance systems, which was actually partly developed right here at the light station. Now, it shuts down in 1984, and most of the facility was donated to California State Parks in 2000. Today, you can come and check this amazing location out for yourself, as it is open to the public. At least it was before COVID. You might want to call beforehand. I don't know. I think it's actually a first come, first serve when it comes to tours. That's what I've seen from the people that have actually been there. Now, this whole area is believed to be extremely haunted. People have seen the apparitions of some of the shipwreck victims. 
Thank you, Buttercup, for your little hello there. One spirit that has been seen several times is that of a tall man in a navy blue suit. He's often seen walking throughout the visitor center and the tower. Another resident spirit is believed to be a former keeper as he is in a keeper's uniform. He has sad, dark gray eyes. He's not the only former keeper here. Some of the families have been seen and heard as well. Others claim to have seen the two Navy men who died from the USS Macon. The lightkeeper's house is home to at least one resident spirit. She is believed to be a lightkeeper's wife named Ruth. She is thought to enjoy spending her time in the kitchen. People often experience phantom smells <sighs> of cooking and baking. And I've been there before. I've talked about it in the phantom smells episode with my grandma Mary and her baking. I still get it from time to time, but not nearly as often. But when I get that, it's a little sweet present just from her. So gotta love those phantom smells, especially when they're cooking and baking. Like what you cooking up in there, girl? Not that stinky, whatever, like decay or whatever else that phantom smells come with. Another thing that occurs is that the door will sometimes be left open in the kitchen and all of a sudden it'll just swing back closed on its own. And at this point it's been open for a while. It's not like it's drafty and whatever and have you. And so who knows? One regular volunteer there also investigates the paranormal and she's captured several EVPs here in the past. One was of a woman saying, Pokey, go to bed. And a little girl's voice could be heard responding unintelligible words in the background. The volunteer believes this to be Catherine Ingersoll, the wife of John Ingersoll, a former lighthouse keeper. John was actually the second official head keeper staying from 1890 to 1901. They had a nickname for their daughter. You got it. Pokey. And this isn't the only volunteer here to see an apparition or experience things otherworldly of past light keepers and their families. Another volunteer was alone here one day. She was just cleaning up and finished vacuuming. She was putting the vacuum away in its designated spot when she suddenly hears a sound coming from downstairs. Well, she looks down the stairway to see the apparition of a woman. She wore her hair up. Her sleeves were puffy and she wore a long skirt. She also saw the apparition of a man looking at her through a room window a different day. Now, volunteers and visitors have had, at times, heard a young child, which sounds like a little girl talking, and have even caught her little cute voice on the recorder. Those good old EVPs. Can this possibly be Catherine and John Ingersoll's daughter, Pokey? And a few years ago, People were here visiting the volcanic rocky island that is Point Sur, and they were in one of the keeper's homes. And while in the basement, they take pictures. And in one of those pictures, it reveals a bluish mist. And another time, a skeptic came here at night. And as soon as she arrived, she said, the moment I walked in, it felt like there was an electrical charge in the air. It felt very dense and very heavy in there. Nervously, she sits down and suddenly starts to hear loud, unexplained breathing. She explains it as being sharp 
and steady, gasping between breaths, as if the person swallowed water and is trying to breathe properly now. Very interesting stuff indeed, as people have drowned here, obviously. Now, when I lived in Northern California several years ago, many, many moons, I was about an hour from San Francisco, and I'd go all throughout that area. And Well, I've seen Point Sur in person. I've never actually had the pleasure to go on the island and explore, but seems like a pretty neat place to go check out. So if you are interested, remember, call ahead of time because... I think it is first come, first serve. So I'd hate for you to make a long trek and have to deal with the being turned away. And as you're listening to this episode, I myself am in California visiting family and friends, if only for a few days. So if you see a paranormal prowler walking around the streets of Burbank, Woodland Hills, or Poway, Come on over and say howdy. Hi. Hola. (laughs) And again, this episode is dedicated to a man who investigated the paranormal for several years. Lee Still. So I actually just paused. And after 15 minutes of searching through my Paranormal Prowlers page, I finally found this message that Lee had sent me. And this is all about what was played on Halloween. But since this is dedicated to him, I want to just quickly read what he wrote me and then I'm going to play that EVP. So he says, Tessa Morrow, here's a first class EVP. My team captured on one of our investigations at an old black cemetery in Kernersville, North Carolina, where we have got a lot of response from. The cemetery dates back to Civil War times and isn't too far away from the infamous Coroner's Foley House. There used to be a church at the location, but it was relocated to another site in town. This video was from several years back when our former tech specialist, Ray, was with the team. He was using a device called an Echovox or Echo Box. He asks, Where are you buried? And plain as day, you can hear a male voice that wasn't one of our investigators, but an unseen presence respond right here. Very clearly, and we looped it in the short video so you can hear it repeat several times. This is one of our clearest EVPs. Our team name is Positively Paranormal Investigation Team. And we're a Christian-based team based out of Liberty, North Carolina, where we have an office in our team leader's house. We have about 10 years, 10 plus years experience and do residential, business, and popular historical sites investigations of reportedly haunted sites such as the USS North Carolina Battleship, the old Charleston, South Carolina City Jail, and Gettysburg. We've been featured on True Ghost Stories, WWAY TV News, Elon TV, the Ashboro Courier Thrive Magazine, and newspaper and other newspaper articles. We do cleansings and blessings and never charge for our services. We're currently working on a collaboration with the Ghost Nation TV show. Lee Still, Team Case member. He was so sweet for sending that for me. And I really did appreciate having him on that episode. So I'm going to play real quick 
So very cool. You could he clearly hear a man saying, right here. So again, rest in peace, Lee Still. You are definitely missed by your, your family and your paranormal family and friends. And we will see you on the other side. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Uh, yes, sir! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can listen to it by going to any of those podcast platforms, such as Deezer, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, wherever you may roam to listen to your other fantastic podcast. You'll probably find Paranormal Prowess Podcast looking in the background. And don't forget, New episodes are released every single Monday. And a huge voiceover shout out to Adrian Romero, Fitz, Jerry Morrow, Casey Morrow, Jeff Atkins, Thomas Janes. Do you want to partake in the voiceover activities in a future episode? Throw me a message. I'd love to have you on, matey. This week's special city shout outs go to Indianapolis, Indiana, Alexander City, Alabama, Binghampton, New York, Round Rock, Texas, and Brickercara, Malta. Thanks a million for stopping by. Have a spooky experience to share. How about a spine-tingling investigation, a local myth or legend in your town, or some other idea for an episode? Tell me all about it. You can find me on Facebook under Tessa Morrow or Paranormal Prowlers. Or toss an email my way, paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.